0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my masters in eating disorders and clinical nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories, to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today we are joined by Rini McGregor, a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian with 20 years' worth of experience working with clinical eating disorders. She also runs the Train Brave campaign, which aims to inspire athletes to share their stories and raise awareness of the risks of eating disorders and Red S, to provide resources and an open training environment and empower coaches and athletes to have open discussions about the topic of eating disorders and Red S. Rini has also written several books, including Training Food, Fast Fuel Books and Orthorexia When Healthy Eating Goes Bad. She is on the Red S Advisory Board for the British Association of Sports and Exercise Science and sits on the International Task Force for Orthorexia. So as you can tell, I'm very excited today. So hello, Rini. Hi, Hannah. Nice to meet you. Nice to speak yeah. to you. You too. I had one of my lectures at UCL with you a year and a half ago now. And, you know, not to sound corny or anything, but I'm a massive fan. So I feel a bit starstruck today. <laughs>
1: Oh bless you. I I remember the uh the lecture. It's the last time I think I did any actual lecturing in person. Oh really? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, because yeah. yeah, because of covid. Yeah, because of covid. Actually, I remember that because I went from there straight to the Royal College of Psychiatry because I was presenting there in the afternoon. So it was mm. a big day um yeah. but yeah, it was yeah, it was a good lecture I think. They uh people were engaged, which is always good. So. Yeah, I'm,
0: I mean, I'm not trying to suck up or anything, but it was my favourite. So yeah, you did oh, a very good job. Thank you, <laughs> um, thank you. But thank you, for, thank you for joining us today. Like I said, I'm really excited. I wanted to cover two quite big topics with you today. And the first one I wanted to start with was RED-S. So I mm. wondered if you could just start by explaining for us what RED-S is.
1: Sure. So RED-S stands for Relative Energy Deficiency, in sport and basically what it what it is is an imbalance in energy availability for the work that the body is being asked of and Mm -hmm. and the work being not just training but obviously biological function as well so you know i think it there are two types of red s there's like voluntary red s and involuntary red s and Mm -hmm. involuntary red s is when somebody just doesn't really understand the demands of their training and their life and and doesn't understand what what their needs are from a requirement mm. point of view so you know for example i see it quite often in triathletes who will cycle to the pool to do their session the pool but they don't really think about that cycle as an mm. energy demand on them and yet it is so you know so you get involuntary reds and and that that's quite easy to work with because once you've identified kind of the imbalances you can put the intervention into place and and usually it's taken up without any problems and and within a few weeks months that athlete is back on track and there's no issue because once they've identified Mm -hmm. what they need to do, they do it. And then you have what we call voluntary reds, which is much more complicated because it's basically associated with eating disorders and disordered eating. Mm -hmm. So it's much more of a coping mechanism. And I guess it's probably what I see more of in my clinic in that it's very much a restrictive eating disorder but in individuals that also do an awful lot of training. Um, and so there's a big psychological element and, and like I said, it's it's more of a coping mechanism. So it's much more complicated to work with because you're not just restoring energy balance, you're also challenging the fears and the perceptions that that individual has created around food, exercise, body image. So it's much more complex.
0: Okay. yeah, no, it sounds it does sound much more because you've then obviously got to work with those psychological issues as well. And just from what you've been saying, is it sort of is it similar to compulsive exercise
1: or are there differences there? There's some I mean, it's interesting because, again, there's no there's quite a spectrum when you talk Mm -hmm. about eating disorders in general. There's quite a big spectrum, you know, like very few people fall directly into acute categories of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa Mm. you know you often get atypical versions of both in that someone might have atypical anorexia in that they have anorexic cognition but technically their weight is not so underweight do you see what i mean but they Mm -hmm. still have the behaviors and the thoughts and the beliefs that somebody with anorexia who is severely underweight would also have so i think it's it's quite difficult to kind of just classify directly, Mm -hmm. because often you will end up having a range of disordered behaviors, I think is a much better term that all feed in and affect that person, both physically and mentally. But what we do know is that people who do a lot of physical activity, so let's say have an exercise dependency um, in that you know, they, they very much need to exercise in order to feel safe in their Mm -hmm. mind they have a four times more chance of also wow. having an eating disorder. So we know that two extreme behaviors tend to sit parallel with each other, which is why often athletes have a much higher prevalence of eating disorders, disordered eating than non-athletic peers, because you've got that extreme behavior in there already. And and also, I think when you start thinking about the personality types of these individuals, you know, athletes do tend to fit that very personality type a you know they're very determined and focused and have that very perfectionist mindset that compulsion obsession and 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 the problem with these these emotions is that if you don't know how to manage them if you don't identify with them then they can become dysfunctional because you know you put somebody who's got a perfectionist mindset which means they're going to have incredibly high expectations and standards of self, but also of outcome and the environment they're in and and of other people. And you put that person into a competitive environment. And if you don't provide them with the right support, they don't know how to manage that competitive environment. And this is where then their need for constantly cracking the whip and striving becomes dysfunctional and problematic. Absolutely. I've got two things I wanted to to pick
0: up on there. One was I'm really glad that you said about the spectrum of eating disorders. I think we can get very caught up in giving somebody a diagnosis and putting them in a bucket and expecting not a bucket, like in a box and expecting them to have certain symptoms because they've got a certain diagnosis. But I think like you've just said, we're starting to realise or, you know, it's becoming a lot more apparent that eating disorders, you can have lots of different traits from lots of different eating disorders. It's not necessarily one thing and that's all you've got. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you was sort of, do we know why some people will, like you said, you could put somebody in a very competitive environment and some people will strive off that and they'll do very well and go very far, but they're able to also balance, you know, they're able to keep healthy and make sure that they're eating enough at the same time. Whereas other people, like you've said, they don't know how to manage that and maybe take it too far, or not necessarily too far, but they don't look after other areas so that they are getting enough energy. Do we know why there's that distinction there?
1: Fundamentally, it's to do with understanding yourself to a certain Mm. degree. So, you know, we know that an eating disorder, whichever presentation it is, tends to be a coping mechanism in the sense that it's, it's a method of playing out. I say playing out, it's a method of denying difficult and uncomfortable feelings. So mm-hmm. if you are somebody who has high expectations, but you also have this perfectionist mindset, then you're constantly not feeling good enough. And so you're constantly going to crack that whip. And that feeling of not being good enough is really uncomfortable, but you might not necessarily identify that that's the issue because we're not, humans are hardwired to move away from discomfort and threat. Right. That's just how we're programmed. And it it's because, you know, we've evolved over many, 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 many centuries and years. And and, but our brain is still trying to catch up, especially with like technology and and, and everything else. So we we know we're hardwired to move away from threat because obviously in in the past we've run away from hunters and, and, and prey and, you know, all those different things. But now we're running away from difficult emotions because I think we live in a society where it almost feels like success and achievement is the currency and language by which you get an identity and acceptance and approval. So often individuals who, who develop these dysfunctional relationships with food and exercise, they may have come from scenarios in their younger years where they didn't learn how to get they didn't learn how to develop their worth so Mm -hmm. maybe for example they were a sporty child and that was because and that was how they got approval that's how they attained their approval and acceptance from their family or from their parents or from their sport their teacher or whatever whoever it was and because they didn't have their own worth in themselves that became what they learned the narrative that they learned that only if I'm sporty only if I'm achieving am I good enough so it Mm -hmm. becomes this conditional acceptance rather than this unconditional acceptance and this is kind of what I see this general theme in my work is that most people that come to work with me have conditional acceptance of self but the problem is that just sets you up to fail Right? Mm -hmm. Because when you've achieved, like if you go in pursuit of a body image and then think, okay, when I get there, I'm going to be, I'm going to feel happier. But then you get there and you don't feel happier, then you think, oh, maybe I need to go a bit further. And then you go a bit further. Because the answer is, it's not trying to, you're not going to get happiness from an image. You get happiness from being content and comfortable within yourself and accepting yourself fully even the bits of you that maybe aren't particularly comfortable or, or even particularly endearing but that only when you completely audition, unconditionally accept yourself can you really be content. I think that's such a nice
0: way of putting it and I think you're completely right you know I was speaking to somebody um, a few weeks ago about exercise compulsion and he said when You know, when do you go into maybe a gym environment and you're not somebody doesn't comment or congratulate you on how you look or a lot of people go to the gym to change how they look. But I guess it's about valuing yourself for who you are, independent of what you look like. And then if you do want to maybe change some things, then you can do that. But it's not that's not defining your self-worth.
1: Yeah. And I think I think the problem is that, again, I mean, modern society definitely plays into it. I'm not saying that every single person that comes into clinic has had some awful upbringing and some mm-hmm. terrible childhood. Like, I think in some cases that is the case. But in a lot of cases, it's just the fact that we, we are born into society now where there's generally a sense of unworthiness because we're constantly being bombarded with images of what is deemed as ideal whether that's how you should eat or how you should train or how you should look and so if you are you know if you are looking at those images 24 7 of course it's going to feed into the kind of this you know the, the kind of neurochemistry in your brain will take those sound bites and then create thoughts and emotions about oh but i don't meet that ideal or I feel inadequate in comparison, you know? And, and so you start to then create this belief system that, Oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I need to be more like that person because that person looks really happy and is, is achieving and is getting loads of, you know, loads of attention for it. And that's what I want to, and like often people will say to me, "I I do this because I really want to feel special. I want people to be proud of me. It's like, they're trying to attain a sense of achievement and purpose from doing something rather than actually having that within themselves and you know no one's perfect and and no one gets it right all the time and we all have flaws and in a way it's our flaws that probably make us most endearing because it's our flaws that make us different to everything else and it's our flaws that we can get challenged on but instead of taking that as a criticism, sometimes it can be, a place that you can learn so you know if if i have a friend and and he often challenges my thinking and i don't take that as criticism i'm like oh that's really interesting <laughs> yeah maybe i should uh go away and consider that you know and, and think <laughs> about what that means and and how should i how should i then be do, do you know what i mean and i think yeah. i think instead of constantly fearing judgment and fear which is what most people do we should It's, it's, I think it's about, it's about understanding that there will always be opinions, people will always Mm. make an opinion of you. People always make some sort of comment and it's how you interpret that and what you do with that, that then decides to a certain degree, how you view yourself. Right. So, you know, last week, a friend of mine said to me that she she, she criticized some aspect of my social media. And I, and initially I was like, Oh, that's, a, that's, that's new. Like I've never been criticized on my social media as in on, in the content. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's interesting. Now I could have either taken that really critically and gone, Oh my God, I am making such a mess of what I'm doing and what am I doing on social media? Maybe I should come off it. You know, I could have gone down that path and taken it really critically and beaten myself up. But the way I took it was, okay, that's, that's an interesting comment to make, I'm going to just have a think about this and look at what, what does she mean? And, and and could I improve it? And and where is it coming from? And then when I start looking at the evidence, the evidence is that actually my social media is a very educational platform, but it's not going to be for everybody because it's, it is about eating disorders. So it's not going to fit everyone. I say it's about eating disorders, it's about sports nutrition as well, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And and I kind of realized that that comment was probably more about her than it was about me. But the way in which I addressed that and talked through it myself, that's what I mean by showing yourself unconditional acceptance. Because mm. I was like, oh, someone's said something that I need to kind of process and understand. And it wasn't a particularly pleasant comment, but she has every right to have that opinion. But actually, when you work through it, you you turn up for yourself and this is what people (laughs) who have difficult emotion, difficult relationships with self is they just don't turn up for themselves they they constantly beat themselves up and they're looking for answers in the wrong places and the answers are within us it's not easy it's not an easy journey but the answers are within us
0: I I think that is the difficult thing about social media is one it's a highlight reel so for somebody looking at your life they only ever see kind of the good things. And I think even if people share maybe negative experiences, the negative experience always always they post about them because there's a positive that's come out of it and not you don't necessarily see them just sat on their sofa watching TV. But equally, I think, like you said, whatever we do post on social media, a lot of the time when we post it, we want that reward from people like, oh, congratulating you on whatever you've posted. So to get somebody to say, actually, I think what you posted had a negative effect on me that would make us feel uncomfortable because that's obviously not what we've been kind of going out we know that's not why we posted it we posted it to get people's acceptance
1: yeah 100% and but instead of avoiding that discomfort if you then go into it and start being curious about it Mm. you can work your way through it and this is where what people don't do they experience the discomfort and then they run away from it and i don't mean mm. that in a in an actual run away from it but they <laughs> they use different methods to deny that discomfort whether that's mm. restricting their intake overtraining fixating on their flaws or their body image this is all distraction because it takes mm. you away from what the real problem is something else that i wanted to ask you about
0: in terms of with reds if you were to work with somebody that you know maybe wasn't eating enough and they needed to increase their intake but they were quite perfectionistic and maybe quite rigid around rules often what we see in eating disorders what would be your opinion on things like fitness trackers and like food tracking because in a way I think they can be positive to make sure people are eating enough but then also with that perfectionistic nature sometimes
1: they can have a negative effect I mean I'm very anti food trackers so I wouldn't use them at all with anybody. And I don't, yep. and I don't even really talk about calories, even though that's exactly what people want because yeah. people want to get it right. And people want in some ways, when they come to you for a nutrition plan or a, or a macros plan or whatever it is that they're looking for, it's because they they don't know how to contain themselves. So they're saying you contain me,
0: mm.
1: you you take responsibility for this because they don't want to get it wrong mm-hmm. but then you have to start looking at the question of well what, what what does it mean to get it wrong you know like what why is that so important yeah. and often it comes back down to that fear of judgment if i get it wrong people are going to think this about me or i'm going to end up putting on weight and then people are going to have a have an opinion about me or whatever it might be whatever it might be you know if i if i eat the wrong thing i won't be healthy i won't be deemed as healthy and, mm-hmm. and you know and, it, and it's very black and white it's not it's not nuanced at all. I don't use trackers. I think they're wrong, if I'm mm-hmm. honest. I wish there were regulations against their use. I agree. Um, because I think, like, also they're really misinformed, mm-hmm. right? Like, the thing I notice quite a lot in clinic is that often the people I work with have displaced carbohydrate with vegetables and a fitness tracker calculates those vegetables as carbohydrates so the, the person thinks they're eating a lot of carbohydrate but mm-hmm. you know vegetables yes they are a source of starch but they're basically just cell wall which means there's absolutely mm-hmm. you know you can't absorb it you can't digest it which is why it's good for a fiber point of view but it's not going to give you the the energy that your body needs to regulate hormones to provide you with the, you know the, the energy you need to do your training or, or, or biological functions so I think they're very, you know, at the end of the day, how can something as simple as an app that you put data into be sufficient for the complex nature of what our body can do? I think you've hit the nail
0: on the head there in they just aren't accurate. And also, I think they become your internal hunger cues or they kind of take over your brain in that rather than thinking you know being aware of when you're hungry or when you're full or what your body actually fancies on that day it's a computerised system telling you what you need to do which that i think that just completely takes away from you having the trust in yourself and in your body to know what you need i think it's it's like you say it's that fear of getting it wrong so you have to use an external force or whatever to actually tell you what you should eat rather than having that trust in yourself just in case you make a mistake
1: yeah I mean 100% I think that you know I think fundamentally we have become a society that uses external cues and external validation for every aspect of our life yeah and that's the problem right like we're all born with the ability to know what we need to eat or what, how much fuel food we need. Like you look at babies that breastfeed and they know when they've had enough. You look at even bottle fed babies and they know when to turn their faces. You look at, you know, babies that are being weaned and they, they they know when they're done and you look at toddlers and they, you know, they'll run around and they'll eat the things they want. Like they'll go through phases of eating loads of bread and they'll go phases of eating loads of cheese because that's what their body is demanding of them Mm -hmm. Like we're all born with the ability to actually listen to our body and respond to it it's just that we get to certain points in our life where we start to let external cues and validation impact us so you know obviously you know food adverts or food programs or supermarkets or social media they all feed into this this is what you should do and then you lose sight of what you really want and Mm. and then the people that do eat what they really want often get criticized for eating what they really want because it's like, well, well, that's not, that's not what I expect. I mean, I have it all the time. Like, that's not what I expected a dietitian to eat. I'm like, well, what did you expect a dietitian to eat? Like, I have no issue with food. I'll eat what I want when I want. Some some days it's probably textbook and other days it really isn't, but that doesn't make me a bad person or, or somebody that's not healthy or somebody that doesn't have a good diet. It's just it's a balance right and and i think when i talk to people about what healthy eating is it's not it's not really a way of eating it's an attitude it's Mm. it's knowing that food is so much more than just calories in calories out macros health not health food is you know it's the it's the currency that brings us all together it's the thing that connects human beings and if there's one thing we must have learned this last 12 months is how important social connection and interaction is mm. on our well-being you know and and i think people often overlook that when i'm working with individuals who are fearful of going to have food with friends out or whatever i'm like think about the memories you're creating mm. think about the well-being you'll get from having a laugh with your friends It's completely more important than what you're eating, which is irrelevant. And you're not going to remember what you're eating because you're going to remember the evening for being fun and entertaining. And that's going to have much more of a health, healthy impact on you than sitting there wondering whether you should eat the pizza or not eat the pizza. You know, it's, and, and I think the other thing is that food, energy, energy balance, weight, It's all been so dumbed down, you know, and we've, again, we've been thrown into this threat that if we eat even one thing that might have sugar in it or might have fat in it, suddenly we're going to become obese because we're a population of obese people. And that's so not true. It's not what you do one day. It's what you do over several days, over several weeks, over several months, over several years, right? Like nobody goes from being a normal size to overweight overnight that doesn't happen and 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 also we know that there are multiple factors in what causes that as well so it's not all just because somebody has decided to eat more calories it's often related to mood and emotions and lack of education even and inequalities in food supply and and everything like that right so so i think it's not as simple. And, and like, if you start looking at studies around energy balance and the physiology behind energy balance, we know again, that humans are hardwired to always achieve energy balance. You know, it's biased, we're biologically biased to achieve energy balance. So if we do a lot of activity, then the body just demands more food. Mm -hmm. If we eat a little bit more, then generally you'll probably find that you're naturally a little bit more active, not necessarily in a, I'm going to go for a run type of way, but you'll probably find you fidget more or (laughs) you got the stairs up and down a bit more because you've got a bit more energy or you, you start cleaning or something. It's not conscious, but it's how the body adapts. So this is why diets don't work because when you create a massive deficit, then all you do is put the body into compensatory behaviors. You know and this is what we see in red that when the energy usage is much higher than the energy going in then the body starts to down regulate because it will always prioritize movement and it down regulates biological function so periods stop morning erectile functions decrease it affects your you know it affects all the hormones in the body so you don't get adap- adaptation from your training you become more at risk of injury you 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 end up with digestive problems because there's not enough energy in the system to have a healthy digestion system. So, you know, it, it's not it, it might give you a temporary fix in that it helps you to feel a bit more in control in inverted commas. But it's a false sense of security because the reality is you're doing yourself more damage than good. Yeah, and I just I don't think
0: that there's that awareness of those health consequences from dieting, and you know people that have been on diets for years and years. I think it's scary to think what they're putting their body through because of the social pressure to go on a diet or to eat more restrictively. And that actually kind of brings me on to the the next topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which was orthorexia. <laughs> I think the kind of awareness of it has increased quite a lot over the the past few years. But obviously, it's still not a diagnosable eating disorder. But I just wondered if you could explain to us what orthorexia is for those that maybe haven't heard of it before.
1: Yeah, I think it's changed a little bit, actually, because like when I wrote the book, it was very much orthorexia was defined as the obsession with eating correctly or eating mm. purely. And I think it still is to a degree, but I also think orthorexia has now started to be used as the umbrella term to all disordered eating, you know, because one of the reasons we've found it so difficult to create diagnostic criteria is because there are so many wellness trends, food mm. trends that seem or are promoted as health, but the reality is they are a disguise for restriction and Absolutely. um you know, disordered eating. So, Mm -hmm. so I think orthorexia is, is again, it's probably an umbrella term for all disordered eating because like we said at the beginning, it's such a lot, such a lot, big spectrum, you know? And, And people always say to me, what's the problem with wanting to eat healthy? Like, what's the problem with it? And I always say, there's no problem with it. The problem is when it becomes so obsessive that it creates anxiety and impacts the way you live so there's no there's no reason why you can't eat your chicken and rice and and your um you know whatever your kale smoothies if that's what you really like but if you're doing it because it helps to provide you with an identity or it makes you feel safe and you can never deviate from it then that's a problem yeah absolutely and I I think it's
0: it's kind of that case with a lot of things that are related to disordered eating and exercise is that a lot of the behaviors can be part of a healthy lifestyle, but it's like you say, it's when they become something that you have to engage in in order to relieve anxiety or not feel guilty. That I think is when the issue arises. But I think it's a very thin line of an issue and healthy eating. I think healthy eating is one of the things you, you know, like you just mentioned, it's kind of disguised as disordered eating healthy eating feels like it's become one of those disguises
1: yeah totally i think i think that the problem is that people don't even know what it is anymore to be fair it's it's not changed from what it's always been which is that uh, the art of eating in moderation like nothing's changed it's always going to be that but the problem is we're still working on how do we make moderation glamorous and sexy because yeah. nobody wants to do moderation and to be honest moderation is a difficult thing to understand because it's going to be different for every person, mm. right? Like if you are somebody who is sedentary, moderation is going to be different to somebody who is very, very active. If your job is very, very active, that's going to be different to somebody who sits in an office all day. Like it, it, it's, I think that's, that's why it's so difficult because there really isn't a one size fits all. Right. Um, you know, we have guidelines and again, you can you can take what you want from the guidelines but I think that's what they are they're guidelines and you have to also look at are these relevant to me Mm -hmm. now this is kind of something else I have to constantly challenge with the people I work with is that they'll say oh but you know I'm only supposed to have um you know we're not supposed to eat sugar and I'll be like well where does it say that because not even the guidelines say you should never eat sugar Mm -hmm. but yeah absolutely sugar should be you know, one of the smallest components of our daily intake. However, if you are somebody who is underweight, and we are needing to get extra energy in, and we don't want to increase volume, sometimes having food that have empty calories as such can be a useful way as an addition to an already balanced diet. Mm-hmm. So it's about what's relevant to you. It's not about what's what you should or shouldn't do if that makes sense and I think again it's like when people watch things on on the tv and they watch programs and they're like oh my god that program said that we should never eat bread and it's like is that relevant to you like (laughs) is that really relevant to you and and I think that's the thing why people again it goes back to people constantly looking for answers from external cues when actually the answers are within ourselves but I think we we don't teach it well. Like, I think one thing I'd love to do is, is get schools to start talking about this message about the fact that human beings are hardwired to run away from threat and discomfort. So mm-hmm. let's talk about difficult emotions. Let's talk about the fact that when you are a teenager, you are going to feel all sorts of discomfort mm-hmm. and you're going to want to escape from your body because that's just what's going on for you, and it's normal. But because nobody teaches that or talks about that, all these teenagers grow up thinking they are individual in their experience and they don't know how Mm -hmm. to handle it. And so then they end up trying to find coping mechanisms to cope with it, whether it's self-harm or drugs or alcohol or eating disorders. You know, mental health in teenagers and young adolescents is, is huge. But why? Like, at the end of the day, For people so young that haven't really experienced so much adversity, why?
0: Yeah, I think it goes back to, I mean, and I'm not saying this is completely the total thing, but I think it does go back to social media and that constant pressure. I don't think I was on social media. I don't know how old I was, but it wasn't until maybe 15. But even then, you know, there's there was still that comparison all the time. And like you said earlier, you're scrolling through Instagram. I think the thing that scares me is you're taking so many images in without actually realising that you're processing the information. Mm -hmm. And so I think it doesn't give you that chance to... Maybe if you read an article, you can read it and you'll sit and you'll take it in and you know maybe have questions for yourself that you want to find out more information. But just by taking in that picture, you don't give yourself time to reflect on how did that make me feel? Is that actually what I want to look like or is that what society wants me to look like? And I think it's that lack of awareness, maybe, that then you just automatically have that, those thoughts in your head that that's what I should be like.
1: Yeah, totally. Like I said, we have been, we're born into a society which basically sets you up to feel unworthy, you know, like I, I didn't have, I'm, you know, I'm a lot older. I didn't have social media growing up at all. That doesn't mean that I didn't have peer pressure or I didn't Mm. struggle with my own emotions and difficulties. I did, you know, when I was finally introduced to Instagram, which was back in 2018, I think, because Mm. it was just after orthorexia had Been published, and I was sort of encouraged to use it to to promote the book. And I honestly, until that point, I had absolutely no idea that this world existed. (laughs) I had no idea that there were all these people on there saying all this stuff. Like I didn't. I I've grown up, and I've worked in industry where you know who is reputable, you know who is credible, and you know where to get the references if you need them. So you didn't look anywhere else. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. and then suddenly you get introduced into this world of, of, of like people and everybody's talking and you're like, Oh my God, like this is nuts. And and where have they got that information from? And why are they saying that? And, and you, Mm. I got really angry to start with. I was like, well, how do I make any impact on here? Because I'm just one, like I've got like five followers. No one's going to listen to me, you know, (laughs) like, and it's, it it is fascinating that how it's grown and, and obviously my relationship with social media now is it's still the same I still I still see it like a friend of mine the other day said you never put anything personal up I was like but well, why would I I've always been a private person I don't want people to know what's going on in my life it's mm. my life you know yeah. like occasionally you might get a picture of a dog but apart from that <laughs> it's it's pretty it's you know I kind of keep everything quite quiet so it's very much a work education platform and that's what it's there for to try and be a voice of reason and rational and rationality in a in all the other voices where people are talking absolute shite and (laughs) you just I mean like the other day I, I I was a friend of mine pointed this person out to me and I'm not gonna say who it is but you know it was like a PT and and he posted and I was just like what what are you on? I don't understand where you've got that information from. And I mean, I, mm-hmm. I can't be asked to argue or challenge every person. I mean, I'd be there all bloody day. So yeah. I I was just kind of like, oh, let it go, rini Just let it go. Because <laughs> it's just going to rile you. And there's no point. But yeah, yeah, I find it. I find it fascinating. But at the same time, I've also met some really, really great people on social media. And yeah. I've made some very good friends and other colleagues and peers and you know it's 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 a really good space to try and work collectively and get some really good messaging out as well so i think like i don't want to be completely negative about it but (laughs) i think you just have to learn to filter right like you have to learn to filter and i guess that's probably how i navigate social media is i I just don't pay attention to things i'm really not that interested i generally just post what i need to post and then leave if i'm honest so but i think yeah i think unfortunately it's definitely become the way people communicate and the way people interact with each other. And, you know, I was horrified yesterday. I found out I had, I had no idea. I've never really understood what TikTok is at all. (laughs) I had no idea. I was horrified at the fact that basically if you put something you like in, so let's say you put, I don't know, something awful, like how to lose weight in a week, then everything that comes up is associated with weight loss. And once oh. you've put that in, you can't clear that history. So you're basically bombarded mm. constantly yeah. with this information. And I, I was like, I, I honestly was sat there going, but what do you mean you can't clear the history? I don't, mm. like at least with Instagram you can unfollow, but you can't, yeah. you're, you're you're literally entrapped. And I'm like, well, how is this allowed? Even on Instagram, if you go onto
0: your discovery feed, which I never, ever, ever go onto, purely because it's always got posts of people that aren't accredited or don't have the qualifications required to be providing nutritional advice and they're posting pictures of things like what I eat in a day or kind of here's my top tip like you say for weight loss and there's just no science behind it they're very often very restrictive diets but I think the majority of people if they want you know advice on diets or fitness or weight loss they're not going to turn to scientific literature for it they're going to turn to instagram because like we said earlier it's very easily digestible and it lays it out in layman's terms not necessarily factual layman terms but i think that's why people go to that and it's so dangerous because i think a lot of the behaviors on there are then perpetuating things like orthorexia or
1: very restrictive diets. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, you're now, like, the fifth person who's talked about this discovery. Oh, it's awful. Button. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm not going to ask you because I don't want to no, know, No, please don't. <laughs> so, but I still, I mean, I'm completely clueless, if I'm honest. I, I don't really know what I'm doing on social media most of the time. So um, Keep it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's best that way, to be honest. I think it'd be dangerous in my hands because I just... I mean, I I have a team that helps me, and sometimes I'm bringing them up, going. They laugh at me. They're like, "Well, what do you mean you don't have to do an Instagram live?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know. Tell me what I'm supposed to do." And they're like, "Rina, you just go and you press this button." I'm like, "Okay, cool. All right, I can do it now." But I'm honestly, I am that useless. So, yeah, it's it's wasted on me. <laughs> so.
0: Something I wanted to ask you as well was, I think we kind of touched on it for reds, but I wanted to ask you about the characteristics made and signs of both reds and orthorexia
1: that people might recognise. So both are fairly similar in the, mm-hmm. you know, as we said, it generally tends to be that they start to notice food rules. Mm-hmm. So you know, they make, these are created by themselves, by the way, they're not, they're not actual food rules, but you know, it's like, you know, I mustn't eat this after five o'clock, or Mm -hmm. I can only have sugar when I've done X or whatever it Mm -hmm. might be. And they start to live by these rules. And so when they can't deviate from these rules Mm -hmm. and that, so, because it starts to create a lot of anxiety. So that's definitely a big sign. Um, in both cases. But in orthorexia, the other thing sometimes you see is this very evangelistic um, way of talking about what they're doing, like it's really healthful, like it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I feel amazing, like, and I'm glowing. And because it's all about that, you know, that's kind of where it's come from, this kind of eating purely. And you're, you're somehow, you're, you everybody else is inferior to you, because you're eating in a way that propels you, you know, so there's an element of that as well the other thing about orthorexia is that you will often find that people will be very very specific about the brands that they so it's not like they can eat any hummus they have to eat a specific type of hummus you know and if they don't then again it creates anxiety so Mm. a lot of it is around um kind of rules and then in terms of kind of like in red some of the symptoms you would see um i guess in red, like some of the common symptoms are that While you may initially see a slight improvement in performance, it's very short lived. And then you start to notice a real decline in your performance and often then complete stagnation. And again, you may notice that you get a lot more injuries and niggles. So I'm not talking necessarily full blown stress fractures, but you'll just notice that you're constantly getting little niggles. So you can't always be consistent in your training. You won't be recovering well between training sessions. You'll be tired. You might find that your motivation starts to lack, you know, In both cases, you may notice mood drops because when you're restrictive and you're hungry, you're you're a bit, you're you're sad, right? Like it's just normal. Um, Sleep is affected because when we're hungry, our body goes in search of food. So sleep gets affected. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously menstrual cycle in women can get affected in either cases. So, you know, it might be that menstrual cycle starts to get erratic or a bit lighter, or then completely stop, you know, And, and these are not good signs. So These are things that need to be acted on and in guys, often what we find is that their uh, morning erectile function decreases to less than five a week. So that's also Mm -hmm. not a good sign. And the thing to say about guys in particular is that their bodies can actually withstand a much lower energy availability than women. Mm -hmm. So because of the whole reproductive nature of women and us, you know, being the baby making machines, basically, Mm -hmm. and the effect of estrogen, our body switches off a lot quicker. Whereas guys, when they start presenting with some of these symptoms, they're in a really bad way. A guy's body is definitely more resistant to energy, low energy availability. Mm. So I guess like they're kind of like the symptoms you would see. And again, like I said, digestive problems as well, is what we see a lot in reds and in orthorexia, because even though they may deem that they're eating really well because they're eating loads of fruit and vegetables and you know all the things that are associated with health, the problem is that there's not enough energy going in then the body slows down digestion. And so the movement of food through the gut becomes very slow and sluggish and basically starts to ferment and creates those very uncomfortable, bloated wind kind of problems and issues. So you often think you've got IBS, but actually you haven't. You've got something called gastroparesis, um, but it's often misdiagnosed as IBS. And so this is where it becomes problematic because you go to your GP, they tell you you've got IBS and then you end up on a exclusion diet, which just makes the whole thing a lot worse. So yeah. so that they're kind of I suppose they're the kind of the key things that you'll probably notice. But definitely like mood, irritability, lack of sleep, and then some of the physical signs will start to come as well.
0: Well thank you for explaining that because I think that's a really useful thing for people to hear, especially if it's something that they're already considering that may be a problem, to hear that it might spark some some people to think that possibly they need to get some help so thank you so much it's been lovely to speak to you today and so much information and lots about social media which I wasn't expecting but nice to hear your perspective on that so that was really good the last question that I've been asking everybody and we'll go for focusing on reds and orthorexia so if somebody is listening and they resonate a lot with what you're saying what would be your top tip or best advice for them to seek help and move away from the behaviors that maybe are having a negative impact on
1: their life I think I would say that the answer is never in food or exercise or body image Mm. so while that might feel like a source of security it's just a false sense of security and Mm. definitely as difficult as it can be definitely reach out and ask your GP for help. Like, that's always the first port of call. I appreciate mm-hmm. that there's a real mix of GPs in this country, and some are brilliant and some are maybe not so good. But what I would say is, and I said this to somebody the other day, today they messaged me on Instagram, I said, just go back, just go back, yeah. just go back. Don't give up. Like, you all deserve support and help. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you should, This is you're, you're unwell. Like, there's something wrong, something's off kilter. And that's nothing to be ashamed of, that's just... What's going on for you at that moment. So I would say definitely go and get help, but also maybe ask yourself, what are the things you're missing? Like, I always say like, what are the opportunities you're missing out on because of your behaviors? You know, I don't think people ever stop to think about that. They're so caught up in this, this need to contain everything and and not feel fear, but at the same time, they're missing out on so much of life that they'll never get back again. And sometimes that can be a real wake up call. Absolutely. I think we're very focused on as a society,
0: we're very focused on what we look like and being the person that ticks all the boxes on what everyone wants to achieve. But then actually having a laugh with your friends and family, that's probably the best thing you're going to get. So, yes, I think that's a, a lovely little reflection. So thank you so much. And yes, it's been lovely to speak to you.
1: My pleasure and thank you for thank you for having me.
0: I feel super duper honoured to have been able to tap into the brain of Rainy today about Red S and orthorexia. For somebody that has so much knowledge on it, it was just incredible to have that conversation and learn more about two conditions that I don't think we know a lot about and they're extremely modern. Next week, we'll be joined by Cara Lissett, who is a mental health blogger with her own story about her recovery from bipolar disorder and anorexia nervosa. The conversation I had with Cara, I think, is a really useful conversation about recovery as we discuss things like quasi-recovery, tips for overcoming ritualistic behaviours and also the impact that Covid's had. We also discussed what Cara likes to call the unglamorous side of anorexia which are all the health consequences associated with weight loss that are often forgotten about in the pursuit of a smaller body. A lot of it is like partially like behavioural and some of it's internal I guess so a lot of it is that I'm just trying to challenge a lot of the rules that I've still got that are a bit of a hangover that Mm. I could live the rest of my life with them in terms of just I can only eat at certain times or you know I have like a calorie limit for a particular snack or whatever and they're not things that have any real significant impact on my life but I just don't want to have any rules anymore so I'm trying to just do things that challenge all those little ones that I could probably
1: function with forever but that I just find them quite frustrating
0: if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so please be sure to subscribe please also like comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may be struggling at the moment not only those with eating disorders but also their loved ones as this can be a difficult time for everyone Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire others to embark their recovery journey. For further support, please visit the Beat or the First Steps website or speak to your local GP. See you next week. Bye.